by summarizing the blessings Christian believers have through the work of Christ. There are two of these. Our right as new covenant priests to enter heavenly worship, that's in verses 19 and 20, and help from a great high priest, that's in verse 21. Then in verses 22 through 25, he gives three duties or exhortations that are rooted in these blessings. These commands all begin with let us. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. The first is let us keep on worshiping God. We looked at that a few weeks ago. The second is, let us keep on believing and living according to the promises of God. That was from two weeks ago. And finally, we will consider the command to consider. Also, perhaps you've noticed or you recall that each of these duties have an accompanying grace. We draw near in faith. We hold fast in hope, and we will consider certain things about love. So the big picture is two blessings, three duties with their matching graces. This morning, we'll look at the third of these duties in verses 24 and 25. And I have summarized it and outlined it in your bulletin. I know that's, I think, the first time I've done that. If that is helpful to you, um, good. I will keep trying to do that. We'll see how that goes. But here's these verses summarized or interpreted even, if you will. Verses 24 and 25 are a call to thoughtfully plan how to fruitfully impact each other by regularly gathering together to encourage one another because Judgment Day is coming. This third duty is a call to thoughtfully plan how to fruitfully impact each other by regularly gathering together to encourage one another because Judgment Day is nearing. I'll be presenting this content to you under three headings. Our duty, its means, and its motive. Our duty first. This is found immediately at the front of verse 24 in the words, and let us consider. Or more precisely, let us keep on or constantly consider. Now it's important to recognize the context of this duty. These words, let us, remind us that the context of all of these duties is the local church. They are addressed to the brothers, verse 19. The we and the us of these verses refers to Christians in relationship to one another in the new covenant community. They have the blessings of the priestly work of Christ, and so they have been cleansed from their sins and made into a company of priests to worship their God together. And this means that the duty I'm about to describe is directed to and between the people of God. This is not a duty only for pastors or people who want to be pastors 
or people who like to be seen and out front, which hopefully no pastor does. This is a duty of every Christian toward their fellow believers. Now let's look at the duty itself. What is this duty? What is it to consider? We tend to look, I think, for those of you used to this verse or these two verses, we tend to look later in the verses for the meat of it. But the actual command is to consider. What is it to consider some action? It's to give steady and careful thought or attention to it. It is to purposely mull something over in your mind, thinking with care, thinking with purpose, thinking with focus. It's to be thoughtful and reflective, not inattentive or dismissive. So this duty is, and some of you really won't like this, we all find this hard. This duty is a call to concentrated mental effort. God is calling you to labor with your mind. This echoes Peter's call in 1 Peter 1.13 when he says, prepare your minds for action. There should be no laziness in Christians in regard to their minds. Christian, Christians in the scriptures are not given a pass on mental laziness. No, we have here an exhortation to thoughtfulness. But let's take this a little further. You know, all of us are naturally quite good at considering, you know, thoughtfully reflecting upon our own needs and wants. We don't even think of that as work or labor, do we? Being thoughtful toward ourselves and our own good comes naturally. But the preacher here is calling us to consider more than our own good. He says, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. He's commanding us to set our minds to the specific good of our fellow churchmen. Take your thoughts off yourselves, he says. Put away your self-centeredness and thoughtfully plan for the good of others. Now, I'm not going to have uses, as I almost always do at the end of our sermon, at least not in my usual way, because they're going to be filtered all through the sermon. My simple question to you and to me is, have you learned to do this? Do you spend any mental effort at all in thinking about how to do good to each other? Is it a fleeting moment or is it a focused attempt? Is it relatively thoughtless or is it thoughtful? This is the heart of the command and we need to see it as all of our responsibility. Now, what's the content of this duty? What is it that we're to be thoughtful about? What are we specifically commanded to focus our thoughts on for others in this verse? Well, it's, it's in the words immediately following, how to stir up one another. Perhaps your Bible translation says how to provoke one another. 
Any of you with more than one child know very well what provoking is. It's when one does something that almost forces the other one to do something else, to react. Mommy, mommy, he's touching me. I'm not touching him. I'm just really close. He's provoking his brother. That's what provoking is. That's what stirring up is. The word is a very strong one. It usually has a negative connotation, like the example I just gave. There is a case of this in the New Testament. In Acts 15, 39, this is the words, this is the word that is used to describe the sharp disagreement, the paroxysm, that's what the word is, this eruption of differences between Paul and Barnabas concerning Mark. That word doesn't describe a small difference of opinion. No, they had an angry dispute. They incited one another. It was so strong, they actually had to go their separate ways. In our case, in this verse, the connotation is good, but the force is still strong. We are being urged to thoughtfully plan how to have a real, practical, good effect in another believer's life. We are to stir them up. We're to beat the batter. We're to spur them on, as some translations say. Now, if I were to ask our visitor, Hannah White, how to make a horse go, she could give us more than one answer. One way might be to coax it, perhaps with a little food. You might get on the back and, and use some motion or command that it's learned. Another thing you can do is you can put on your boots and spurs, hop on the back of the horse, and dig those spurs in. That will get a very strong reaction ordinarily, won't it? Well, that's what the preacher's after here. He wants you to think about ways that will actually be effective in producing certain things in the life of fellow believers. He doesn't want you to go, I don't really want to think about this. I've got 30 seconds. Um, I guess that'll do. No, he wants you to know the person, know your duty, think about what you might do to stir them up so that they improve. And you'll find that this is reflexive. So, this will be good for you too. This will work on its way back to you. The point is to incite one another to action. You want to see them do something. You will not be content if they listen to you and go thanks and go away unchanged. And for them to see us do something and to impact us. Again, this is mutual, this is church-wide. So again, let me ask, do you ever give thought to things like this for the body of Christ? Now, I know some of you do, because I see it. I hope I'm at least a little bit alert to it, and I praise God for it. But do you give thought to things like this for the body of Christ? You hear of a need. In your interactions with the body, you see a, a weakness of grace. 
you see a, a spiritual lethargy coming over someone. Well, what do you do? I'll pray about it, Pastor. Good. What else will you do? I'll pray about it, Pastor. No. What else does God want you to do about it? I'll let the pastor handle it. He'll probably do it better. He has time for this. This is what we pay him for. Um, I might mess it up. Um, I'm frightened. Whatever. I just hope the pastor sees what I see and does something about it. Well, please do pray, yes. And sometimes it's appropriate to get help or pass the ball. But this verse tells us that we have more responsibility to each other than to just listen, sympathize, and pray. We must thoughtfully reflect on how to stir up each other in the Christian life. In other words, this is a call to holy planning so that we can move our brethren and ourselves forward toward heaven. We want to get them to act, to change, to progress, and we want the same for ourselves. Well, progress toward what? What is it we're aiming for? Well, so next let's talk about the goal. The goal of this duty. The goal of this thoughtful plan is to stir others up, quote, to love and good works. Not to sinning, not to two young boys fighting, not to, to love and good works. Now, my thoughts here are going to need to be quick and they'll be inadequate. But remember, love is the fulfillment of the law. It is righteousness, and therefore it is always good for others. If your goal for someone else is love, that's a good goal all the time. And good works often in the New Testament refer to acts of charity or benevolence, but it also refers more generally to simply doing what's right in the eyes of God. So the goal of this provoking one another isn't to sin, but to help us, to motivate us, to move us, to love God and one another. It's to show ourselves to be real Christians. Because remember, those truly in Christ were created in him for good works. In other words, all true Christians have love and good works. How certain is that? Completely certain. Really? In every case? Yes. It's absolutely certain because Ephesians 2.10 informs us that God prepared good works in advance for us. He predestined us. He elected us to salvation. That's certain. He also chose good works for us to exercise. That's no less certain. This is why... There is a reality to making judgments about Christian testimony based on lifestyle, based on living. We don't claim to be God. We need to be very careful doing it, etc., etc. But there are plenty of ways that we must rightly see and judge these things 
in order to help one another. How do you vote yay or nay on church membership if you have no clue about the person's lifestyle? I mean, does the person we're going to vote on show any evidence of love and good works or not? If not, you should vote no. Because real Christians love and real Christians do good works. Yes, mixed with sin. Yes, sometimes for, for periods seemingly absent in all they do is sin. But they're always called back and love and good works always characterize what they're pursuing and what they're doing, what they want to do. Good works are, according to Romans 2.7, one of the ways that we seek eternal life. Love and righteous deeds are the road we walk to heaven. Of course, they don't earn us justification, but they glorify God, they help men, they show us to be true believers, and love and good works are the path we walk. If you are walking in hatred and evil doings, I guarantee you, you are not walking toward heaven. You are walking into hell. There's one road, two directions, two destinies. That's all there are. Amen. You're either loving and obedient in Christ Jesus and headed to heaven, or you are not and you are headed to hell. That's, right. that's, that's all there are. That's why I summarize this verse in the following words. It's a call to thoughtfully plan to fruitfully impact each other. If you'll take the time to think and plan how to stir up your brothers and sisters in love and holiness, you will be fruitful. There will be good results, blessings, even in a sense, salvation that comes from this. Well, that's our first point. Our second is the means. In other words, how do we accomplish this? What ways would God have us stir up one another? Well, verse 25 tells us one thing not to do and one thing to do. So he gives a negative and a positive answer to the question of how do we accomplish this? What means do we use? The first negatively is not neglecting to meet together. Some had apparently, even at this early time, developed the habit of non-attendance when the church assembled. This, of course, makes one anothering absolutely impossible. You have to be there for those things to happen. If you're not with the people of God, you cannot be stirred up. You cannot stir up others. So the first means is to regularly gather at the meetings of the community. This is one of the primary things that you should consider. This is part of the content of considering. Here's the positive means. Encouraging one another. Now we've had whole sermons on that word, encourage one another. So let me refresh your memory. This word, often translated encourage, has a wide range of meaning. Everything from comfort and consolation to simply speaking to exhortation and admonishment. In other words, it's speaking 
for the benefit to the need of another. It's loving them in speech. It's a call, so this is a call to fellowship. This is a call to fellowship, to truly get to know one another and to speak in an edifying way to each other. Fellowship is the sharing of regenerate souls in the truth of scripture. So this is a call to strengthen one another for the life of good works. This is another thing you should be considering. You should be thoughtfully planning for when you stir your brothers and sisters up. Do you see what the preacher is saying? The ordinary way to aid each other's Christian walk is to gather for worship and fellowship. Church gatherings in these verses are clearly for worship. Again, see verses 19 to 22. And also for actively provoking one another to growth and perseverance in the Christian life. This time together is discipleship. This is the primary time and place where you and I are instructed, trained, and strengthened to follow Christ. This is not the only time, but this is the primary time. So it is vitally important that you keep on meeting together with the church every time you possibly can. You know, one of the first outward signs of spiritual decline is neglecting the meetings of the church. This is why older pastors jump right on that. Hope you're okay, missed you. Anything we can do? Anything we can pray for? So if you don't tell me where you're at, I'll come find out. Why? Because I don't have enough to do and I'm a really nosy person? No, no, I do have enough to do and would prefer not to know all those details sometimes, thank you. This is part of the one another anothering that we need to do with one another. Amen. So I may not ask you, but I might ask your spouse. I might ask your friend. I might ask, hey, did anybody? And I'm not trying to um, start a procedure that will lead us down the road to uh, becoming a cult. I'm not urging us to sinfully pry into each other's lives, but we've made a commitment to one another. When you joined this church, you covenanted, you swore with an oath that you would do certain things. And one of them was you'd be in the church meetings every time you, you reasonably can. If you're sick, please don't come, right? We're all very aware of that right now. If you're uh, on vacation, you know, we don't expect to see you here. But otherwise, you and I have promised each other to be here. Why? Because of verses like this. Because it's so vitally important for your Christian life. You can't be discipled by God or by the people of God if you aren't here. You, you just can't. You won't benefit from his preached word. You won't receive grace at the table. You won't uh, get interactions that encourage you to 
put off sin and start putting on righteousness or whatever the need is. It simply can't happen. It won't happen. So I'm trying to show you from Scripture and simply from experience that the Christian life depends on coming together. This is why so many churches today have said, okay, we tried to go along with not meeting, but there's a limit. Church and worship and meeting together is an essential thing. It is. It's an essential of life. We need to be in the presence of God. And we need to be in the presence of each other. And when we do that in this setting, it always changes us for the better. Just your presence is an encouragement. The steady example of you being in your seat every time. Your listening ear, your face of concern, your promise of prayers, your warm greeting, your hug, on and on the list could go. All of these and all the more verbal ones stir us up to love and good works. This is why you shouldn't come in after the service has started and leave immediately after without speaking to anyone. Not a good practice. There's nothing spiritually healthy about that. I recognize there are times where there is a legitimate Sabbath place you need to be, and it's time to go. Okay. But if it's your practice, there's something wrong. You need to identify it, and you need to fix it with the help of your brothers and sisters, even if necessary. You see, by not interacting, without fellowshipping, without sharing your soul with a brother or sister, you're negating the possibility of this ordinary means of being stirred up to love and good works. Well, finally, let's look at its motive. We see this at the end of verse 25. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You're to constantly do this, but your death or Jesus is coming soon and it's nearer today than it was yesterday. And so you need to keep, do these more and more. Increase these things. The day is, of course, judgment day. That's when Christ returns and all men stand before him. And then, according to Acts 17.31, he will judge the world in righteousness. Romans 2 tells us that he will render to each man according to his works. So the preacher motivates us here by saying, do these things more and more as judgment day approaches. Stirring up one another to love and good works is wise because a judgment of works is coming. Now we know that our works don't save us. There's no merit in them. But our works do demonstrate where our loyalties lie. And they do this really infallibly. You know, when we look at each other as human beings, we see good and bad and it's all mixed up and, and we say, how can God actually judge us by our works? 
Well, what we don't know and what he does know is that out of the heart, everything proceeds. How your soul is determines what's done outside the body. Your inner man leads your outer man always. And God who sees both the outer and the inner can make a righteous judgment. And so he doesn't go, uh, faith or not, faith in Jesus or not, faith in Jesus. He said, all right, let's look at all your life's works. That's the real proof. That's the real proof. Every person serves a God. You either serve the true God or you serve a false God. So this is a real motivation even for Christians to plainly show by our lives who our God is and where our faith is placed. Is it in God and in his word? Well, then we'll live like it. Our love and good works will be evident. And the reminder of Judgment Day serves, I mean, let, let's be honest here. This serves as an incentive, as a frightening reminder that we need to be sure that our lives bear the fruit that Christians' lives always bear. The knowledge of a coming day is one of the means by which God keeps us in that path of obedience and on that road to heaven. It's one of the reasons that church meetings and an active fellowshipping body are so important. Now, some of you will have different responses to this sermon. There'll be different reactions. Some of you will be encouraged and motivated. Oh, I see it, it's plain, I can see the good from it, I wanna do it. Praise the Lord. Others of you hear God's duties and almost immediately get discouraged. It's like, oh great, another thing I won't be able to do right. And, and I know some of you are wired that way. <clears throat> So let me, in closing, relate this duty to Jesus Christ. What are some of the things we've learned about him in Hebrews? I'm just going to give you three. First, he is our example. Jesus lived a life of perfect and full obedience. This included caring for others in a thoughtful way that promoted their growth in grace. Look what he put up with for three plus years with those disciples. You think that didn't take thoughtful planning, prayer, and etc.? Absolutely it did. And if you want to see how to do this, I would urge you to read, read the gospel. Follow Jesus Christ and how he did this. Learn from him by way of example. Secondly, Christ is our enabler. Remember, he is the mediator of the new covenant. And so he has given us everything we need to please God. He purchased the Holy Spirit for us who applies every grace for life and salvation. So go to him asking for help. Remember, we have a great high priest over the house of God. You are that house. Go for help. And thirdly, he's our perfect savior who removes all of our sins. We are completely forgiven. You will stand on judgment day and be judged, but there will not be a sin to be found 
when the Father looks at you. He will only see more or less deeds of righteousness, deeds of love, good works. There's nothing else to look at. So for those of you who become depressed with every new duty, consider this. Yes, you will do it imperfectly. In fact, let me just tell you, as a, a dear friend, um, you'll do it much worse than you even think you're doing it. It's obvious to the rest of us. It's really obvious to God. You're, you're a much worse person than you think you are. Be encouraged by that. But that's how great a savior Jesus is. None of that ultimately matters. He is able to forgive, what? To the uttermost. Oh, I so messed that up. I planned it, I prayed about it, I went to him, and I totally botched it. We ended up arguing. How could I be such an idiot? Oh, you'll do it worse later, don't worry. But you tried to obey God. There's some good in that. And, and God will forgive the sin, and he'll credit the righteousness of Christ for the other, and it's fine. It will be fine. And I'm, I'm not saying that you should be lax about how you do this. I'm not saying you should not care about whether you do it well or not. Oh, you need to thoughtfully plan to do each other good. You need to get advice. You need to get counsel. On and on. But you need to do it. And don't let the thought of failure stop you. Why? Because Jesus is our perfect Savior who removes all of our sins. So brothers and sisters, with Christ in mind, Consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Let's pray.